Hi, welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. I'm your host, Andy Stanley. Joining me today is David Lang. He is a domestic adoptee, and I really am excited about talking with him today. So welcome, David. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for, for being willing to come on here and be interrogated by me. I appreciate it. So, so you were born and adopted in the state of Connecticut. Correct. Okay. So how old were you when you found out you were adopted and what was that like for you? I was nine years old. Um, my mother had assumed that I already knew. Apparently she told me before, but it never really registered. So when um, she told me when I was nine, I, it was sort of a, you already know this information and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I was, um, I was really devastated when she first told me. And you know, you're not the first adoptee who has told me that when they found out even as a child, that it was really difficult for them to hear that. Now, was it okay to ask questions about it? Absolutely not. It was completely taboo until the time I moved out of the house. I think um, I can count on one hand the number of times that adoption was brought up. Wow, okay, so then she assumed you knew so she just expected you to treat it like it was nothing, basically? Right. I think so. Um, I think the conventional wisdom of the day was that um, adoptees were sort of a blank slate when they came into the family. And I think that combined with um, the fact that she just wanted to normalize it. And perhaps she was a little sensitive. And this all kind of mixed up in a bad brew and, you know, it just never came up. The subject was completely taboo. And how did that, how was that communicated to you as a child? Like, did she get angry if you asked questions or just ignore you? What? Um, yeah, it, the few times that we brought it up, it was, um, it was uncomfortable. Sometimes there would be screaming. Um, there was, there was a lot of anger involved. So, you know, we just walked on eggshells with it and just, it just never came up. Yeah, that's really scary for a little kid. Yeah. You know, and especially when you're trying to understand what it even means that your parent gave you to other people. And then when those people get upset with you for talking about it, that had but, to be- I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I think it's kind of a difficult concept to understand even as adults for, you know, for children to understand such an ambiguous concept. It, it, it's sort of a double whammy. Yeah, we hear a lot about how, oh, my child never asks me questions or my child has no issues with being adopted. But how do you even have the language or the ability to understand it unless the adults in your life are giving you some words for it. Right, or some type of guidance, anything. But 
that just wasn't the case. Oh, and you know, I think we're both baby scoop era adoptees. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of cultural pressure on women to have children as long as you were married. Correct. Yeah. So as long as you were married, it was, you were supposed to have kids. And if you were married and didn't have kids, there was something wrong with you. But if you were unmarried and had kids, no. Right. That, that was just the worst sin available. So. Yeah. And so I think women, there was a lot of pressure from every direction around having children. But the result is we got treated like we were just interchangeable. Right. Like a commodity, basically. Yeah. And, and it's funny you said, you know, we were treated like blank slates because that was the approach that my adoptive uh, parents took as well. And people like to think of that as the accepted child philosophy of the time. Yet there are papers written by psychologists from the 50s that talk about the trauma of separating a child from their parent. And they talk about the importance of, in adoption, the children being told about being adopted and about being like the importance of supporting the child in that situation. But it, that's kind of gotten lost. Uh, you kind of wonder why those types of publications weren't really uh, looked at or discussed. Uh, everything just seemed to be uh, you'll get over it, the child's a blank slate, and just take it from there, and everything will be normalized. Well, and how do you think your earlier comment about commodification plays into that? Um, it, it, it's hard to say. It, it just, it seems like that, you know, being bought and sold is very uncomfortable. And you would think that just by that, there would be some trauma. Well, yeah, I think that historically we can see there's a lot of trauma around and, and adoption is, it's, it's difficult when people talk about the concept of adoption as buying and selling of children, because we do know that we have a history of people being bought and sold and being brutalized. Uh, you know, that was the whole purpose, basically, for uh, those people being bought and sold. So I know that we we acknowledge that it's different in many cases, you know, being adopted, children are brought into decent homes. Uh, not in all cases. So many people think adoption just means it's always better, but that's not true. That's not always the case. But, but when we talk about adoption, it is an industry in this, in this country. And, you know, I was born overseas. There are a lot of international adoptees. We also know that it's an industry. So you are talking about money changing hands. Right. You know, and, and I think the adoption industry had a lot and has a lot invested in, in a, making that message of 
you know, you can just plop a kid down in whatever family you want to, and it'll be fine. They, they have a lot invested in that. Right. Yeah. So, so you found out when you were nine, were you the only adopted child in the household? I had an adopted sister who was two years younger than I was. Okay. And did your parents have any of their own biological children? No. Okay. So you had two adoptees in the house. So you have two traumatized children in a household. Did that promote a closeness for the two of you or no? Not really. Um, We were very different personality wise. I was kind of um, shy, introverted, kept to myself. My sister was very gregarious. You know, she was like the life of the party. So we, we didn't have too much in common. We never really talked about the adoption. I'm not, I don't think that was part of the trauma though. I just, everybody's different. And I just, it, it never came up. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to me how many families with multiple adopted children in the family, the adoptees don't feel comfortable or, or never really talk to each other about how adoption has impacted them either. Do you think that has anything to do with your parents discouraging you from talking about adoption in general? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think that even if we were caught talking about it, 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 it wouldn't be met with any kind of um, understanding or a conversation. It would just, you know, the conversation would just try to be, would have tried to have been shut down, I'm sure. It, you use the word caught talking about it, and the message that that conveys is so sad to me that you would feel like it was something you were caught out doing. Right. You, you know, like you're doing something bad, and we caught right. you at it. I, do you like ever from, like catch yourself talking about adoption in those kind of terms and and just have it hit you how how much like pain is contained in in the language that we choose definitely i um when, when i was in the fog i was in the fog pretty deeply so um sometimes sometimes i wonder how I got out of it. Yeah, that's a good question. Do you think you've identified what kind of caused that? I think I may have lost you. I cannot hear you. Oh, Oh, you're back. Okay. Okay, everybody, that's PG&E in action. Thank you very much. They're doing work in my neighborhood. So so can you kind of, in case it didn't capture that, Dave was saying that he kind of wonders how he came out of the fog. In thinking about it, is there a moment or an event that you kind of identify with coming out of that that indoctrination? Um, Nothing real specific. Just um, when I started going through my search, I started re- researching things on the internet and, I'm, and I slowly found out that 
a lot of the problems that adoptees encounter, like uh, lack of trust, um, things of that nature, is problems that I've struggled with. I think it was like a slow burn, realizing that I had some of the same problems that experts seem to identify with other adoptees. That makes a lot of sense to me because I feel like finding adoptees online around late 2019, early 2020, really kind of sped up the process for me because before I just thought I, there were things wrong with me and I didn't, yeah. And I didn't realize, and, and then it started to make sense why my adopted mom had discouraged me from having relationships with other adoptees because, you know, we talk, we start talking to one another. Right. And what you say about trust too, you know, trust, it also is difficult for us to trust other adoptees, I think, initially. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it, yeah. Yeah, it kind of, it extends out from, from, you know, the space that we grew up in, just outward into all of our relationships. But now that everything's out in the open and we have things like Twitter, I find the catharsis from talking to other adopted people just wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's I've learned so much from all of you who've been willing to talk to me. I really can't express enough appreciation to you and to everybody because it's just been so eye-opening and reaffirming too. And, and a lot of times it's comforting. You mm-hmm. know, you're not the only one out there you know, with these problems and it, it's just nice to talk about. Yeah, it really is. And it's, it's nice to not feel like a crazy person. I mean, for me personally, I mean, the rest of you may feel perfectly sane. But there are many moments where I felt just crazy. I'm using the technical term. I'm a psych major. I'm allowed. Um, so I... And being late discovery, my experience of it is a little different. And I think about what it must have been like to grow up knowing. And now, did you do the adoptee thing that people that I didn't start doing until I was in my 30s, which is look at everybody and wonder if you were related to them? Yes. Okay. Um, I I think I have one of those faces that... um, people seem to think that I look like someone else. Mm-hmm. I very frequently got, um, did anybody ever tell you what you look just like? But it wasn't always a famous person. It was um, one guy said, I look like the mailman. I remember people telling me I look like their teachers or things of that nature. That's for somebody who's biological, that's no problem at all mm-hmm. for an adoptee. The, the wheels start spinning and, and, and they just don't seem to stop, you know? I absolutely, I, I worked in a customer service environment. So I was constantly meeting people. And then I worked for a school district and I was constantly meeting people. And I used to have people tell me, I met your sister. 
I met your sister. You sound exactly alike. You look so much like each other. Has anybody ever told you guys you look like twins? And I used to go, what's her name? (laughs) (laughs) Where was she born? (laughs) Yeah, would you introduce me to her, please? Because she could be my sister. And they would just look at me really puzzled. And I would say, this sister I grew up with is two inches shorter than me and weighs about 90 pounds. So, <laughs> and, and she's blonde and blue eyed, which I am none of those things. <laughs> and so I, and unfortunately, I think they told her that, that sure. there's this adopted person because they didn't know I was adopted till they said, you know, we met your sister. And I said, I'm adopted. She could be. And I never met her or heard anything after that. It went on for years. And then when I finally said, could I meet her? Nothing. She suddenly had moved away. Yeah. So Isn't that interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you grow up where you were born and adopted in the area? Like, did you grow up near where you were born? Yes. So theoretically, when you're looking around, you're thinking, I could be related to these people. Oh, I think I lost you. Yep. Can you hear me now? We're going to play this. No, no doubt about it. <laughs> so did your parents... Can you hear me now? <laughs> I can. We're just going to do this all the way through the interview, everybody. So did you, did you learn later that your parents that your parents were from the area where you were born and adopted, or did your mom travel to give birth to you? My mom traveled. Okay. Uh, uh, She was actually living at the time in Washington state. My biological father was going to college in Hartford. Okay. Uh, He, when, um, when he found out that she was pregnant, he researched places in the area and found that there was a home for unwed mothers in West Hartford. So she traveled cross country under the guise that she found a good job in Connecticut okay. and had the baby there. Well, that's hard. Cause you, so then you spent your whole young life looking for resemblances in people. And then you discover that this is not where your family is actually from. Right. Oh, wow. That's hard. I, so how old were you when you decided you wanted to find out who your family was? Um, it kind of started to pique my interest when my first, my daughter was born. Okay. Um, because you looked at her and she's the only person on the face of the earth that I know of that, you know, shares my blood. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I kind of found out by accident about six or seven years later where I was born. Okay. So and, how did that happen? Uh, this is kind of a long story. You want me to go through the whole... <laughs> Uh, we were going to, we were going away for a weekend and coming back home, we were going through West Hartford. And she said, 
could you pull off the highway and show me where you think you were born? I only knew the date, the municipality, and I was placed by a Catholic social services. Okay. So I drove by a church in West Hartford and we asked a few people there and they said, you know, I don't think this is what you're looking for, but I think there's a place down the road which uh, might be an orphanage. Maybe you should try there. We tried that place and it turned out to be a home for um, teenage mothers to help them, to help them through this, the problems. And they said that, again, we have the wrong place, but they directed us to another place that we could try. Keep in mind, this is all on a hot summer Sunday afternoon. But we finally get to the, um, the place where the home front wed mothers used to be. The building had long been torn down. But next door, there was a place for retired nuns. And one nun in the particular happened to work at the place. And she was nice enough to talk to us. And that's kind of how I found out that odds are I was born at the, the home for unwed mothers in West Hartford. Wow. So you had to be very persistent. Exactly. And lucky, you know, it, it was all on a Sunday afternoon in August. So yeah, it's, it's amazing how things kind of come together sometimes. Uh, but persistence seems to be a big part of what adoptees need. Right. Yeah. To find, So now, had you been told by anyone up to this point that you could request your non-identifying information? No. Okay, so how did you find out you could do that? When we found out where I was born, my wife was very curious about my roots and she kind of went into detective mode. Okay. Th this was obviously pre-internet, pre-Google, all this. So she just made um, several phone calls that week and found out the avenues that we could take to start a search. And the first avenue was getting the non-identifying information. Okay. So it's nice that your wife is was so supportive. Very much so. Yeah. She, that makes... She's good with the sleuthing too. All right. You know, it is so important that we have supportive people in our lives. And for adoptees, a lot of times that takes a lot of work to find those people. And I bet they're so appreciated. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. And it, and because it is so labor intensive, you know, people, people listening, please understand it is not normal for adoptees to be told, Hey, when you turn 18 or 21 or 24 or whatever the law may be, I, you're entitled to non-identifying information. You're entitled to request medical records. You're entitled to request your, a copy of your original birth certificate, you know, whatever your particular place of adoption allows you, which mm -hmm. is everywhere from unrestricted access to no. Right. <laughs> you get, <laughs> yeah, you get nothing but a, why are you here? So, people don't tell us 
And so when I hear, you know, well, I know an adoptee and they've never looked for their original birth certificate. They've never looked for their adoption file. Well, have you even asked them if they know what the laws are in their state? Have you offered to help them? Do they have any idea that they're even entitled to anything? Because people don't tell us. What they tell us is, we adopted you, you're ours, you belong to us, this is your family now, you don't need those people. I mean, not every adoptive family is like this, but for the most part, our families and our culture tells us, this is your family now, you don't need to know anything about the other people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always tell people that adoptees don't come with a manual. Okay? <laughs> we, we're, basic, we're basically flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah, and there's no, you'll hear people say, this is how you should do your search, or this is how you should contact people, or this is how you're supposed to approach things. Well, again, there's no manual. And did you know if did you just know that things were going to turn out great in your search? Definitely <laughs> not. It was <laughs> definitely not. I, I had no idea what to expect. None. Yeah, it could be everything. I don't know. Did you have a list in your head of, I really hope my parents don't turn out to be... <laughs> Again, I really didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Okay. I, was just, I was just hoping for the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it's crazy. Like I know my list had, I really hope my parents are not serial killers. I really, <laughs> you know, you just don't know. It's uh, you hear on TV, the popular TV shows are always happy endings for adoptee searches, right. you know, it's the, the woman who discovered she's a princess or the woman who discovered her mother is a famous uh, model. He, that's, no. yeah, that's not normal people just, <laughs> well, you know, so you decided after the birth of your daughter that you would like to find out who your family was. I'm just looking at my notes. And you, so you requested from Catholic Services, which is the agency you were adopted through, your non-identifying information. And this was pre-2021, because for people who are not familiar, only, I think it's 11 states now, only 11 states allow adoptees unrestricted access to copies of their original birth certificates. And there are a few countries internationally that allow us access. Um, but here in the United States, Connecticut just gave adoptees unrestricted access July 1st of 2021. Right. Yeah. And that access in Connecticut applies to the adoptees' children and grandchildren as well. So they've actually made accommodation because adoption doesn't end with us. Right. Yeah. Your daughter might want to know your grandkids. If you know your daughter has kids, 
they might want to know. So it's important that states acknowledge that it doesn't end with the adoptee. Correct. But you're trying to find all of this out before the law changed to give you access. So you requested your non-identifying information. Was there enough there for you to be able to figure out who your mother and your father were? No. Okay. There were a few surprises, but it was just, it was really just basic stuff. Age, uh, weight, general characteristics, things okay. of that. What were some of the surprises? Do you feel comfortable talking about them? Uh, the biggest thing was my mother's age. I had assumed that, you know, from what I read, that the overwhelming majority of mothers were teenagers. Uh, my mother was 22 at the time. Okay. Yeah, that is a surprise for a lot of a lot of people who find out that their mothers were, you know, in their 20s or older. I, right. But I think it's more comfortable for our culture to think, oh, well, you know, these are poor, usually abused, you know, that's, they like to say, poor abused teenagers. I, it just makes them feel more comfortable about the right. whole, yeah. So it was a surprise to you that your mother was a young woman. Correct. I, were there other things that you kind of went, whoa? I was also uh, very pleasantly surprised to find out that my father was born in Canada. Okay. I've, I've, been, I've been a fan of the National Hockey League since 1970. And that, okay. one, that one just blew me away. Yeah, you know, I think you and I talked about the fact we have that in common. Our fathers turned out to be Canadian. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, which was a huge surprise for me as well. So your father was from Canada and attending school in Connecticut. Right. Your mom was attending school in Washington State, but she wasn't from Washington State, correct? Correct. They both um, grew up in a town in western New York called Olean. What's it called? Olean. Olean, like Oleander? O-L-E-A-N. It's okay. where St. Bonaventure uh, University is. Okay. So they grew up there. So your Ooh. family, most of your family is actually in Western New York? Um, uh, on my father's side, yes. Okay. When they were both sophomores in high school, her family moved to Washington State. And his family moved to another city in upstate New York. Okay. So now you have this non-identifying information, but it's not really leading you anywhere. And this is pre-DNA testing. Correct. Okay, because you and I, we have that in common as well. I discovered I was adopted in 1999. There were no commercial DNA tests laptop computers were not really a thing it was just like a black screen with little white <laughs> letters that yeah it was mostly phone books that's mostly what i found on the internet was phone listings i so you couldn't just run out and do a dna test which dna has its limitations people dna is fantastic and so many adoptees use it as a tool but it only works if other people have tested 
Right. And, yeah. And so if your family members haven't tested, either because they're opposed to commercial DNA testing or they're in a country where people don't do that very routinely because of the expense or laws, DNA is not the end all be all that people advertise it as, but you didn't even have access to that. Right. So how did you figure out from your non-ID, like, where did you go after that? Uh, we decided to do a search through the agency that put me up for adoption in the first place. Did you have and, to pay them? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. It, it wasn't a lot, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> Make a money on you all the way. <laughs> It turned out that my mother had an extremely unusual surname. Nice. So it didn't take them that long to find her and make contact. And um, we were also lucky from the standpoint that my biological mother and father did end up getting married, which is pretty unusual. Yeah. That had to be something of a shock to you. Yes. Yeah. How did you, so, so your mother had an unusual last name, but the agency didn't tell you her last name. No. Okay. They looked at it. So they could look at your records, but you could not. Right. They searched for her. And at the time, Connecticut's law had a clause, correct? That if your parent gave permission for you, to know who they were, you could receive the information. Right. If both parties agreed, then some type of arrangement could be made. But if one party nixed it, that was the end of the conversation. And so many states still have that provision. And and now did they, once they made contact with your mother, they knew that your parents had married. Okay. And then at that point, were you just given the information about your parents and you were able to freely communicate with them? Or did you have to continue going through the intermediary? We continued to go through the intermediary for, I'd say, about a month. And what was that process like for you? Um. It wasn't too bad because we didn't really know anything else. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was a little uncomfortable making the contact myself. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, everybody has different, and that's that guidebook thing, you know? Right. For some people, you didn't feel comfortable. Some people don't feel comfortable with an intermediary. You know, it's, there are so many different situations. So for you, having an intermediary was actually helpful. Yes. And since you discovered that your mother had an unusual surname and your parents were married, at some point she gave permission for you to have the information? Yes. She, um, she had me write a letter to them to which I sent to the intermediary. Then they came in for a meeting with her and they they gave them my letter and said, okay, 
if you want, you can write him. <laughs> did you follow that? <laughs> yes, I did. I don't know. Other people just, if you didn't get that part, just re-listen to it. Just, <laughs> it's, it's almost, it reminds me almost of like an arranged marriage. You know, it's just like, here's a letter. If this seems acceptable to you, then you can write a letter and we're going to gatekeep here in between. And so you're, I guess your letter was well received. Yeah, I, um, the intermediary said that they were somewhat skeptical, but very cordial at first. Okay. Considering I had to write the letter to essentially two total strangers, you know, I took that as something of a success. Yeah. You, you know, I've written a ton of letters to my family over the years, many of which are still sitting in a folder in my house because I never, I either could not find them to send them the letters or they made it clear they did not wish to receive them. So it's been just kind of a way for me to process a lot of my feelings is to write the letters. I, but I know that even when I'm not going to mail it, I still have agonized over what to say. So you know you're going to be handing this letter to the intermediary and you don't want to mess it up. Does that mean? Right. Okay. And you only have a short amount of time to put all these thoughts together. Yeah. I think there's only three or four days. Oh, wow. That's a lot of pressure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, unless you've had a lot of time to think about what you're going to say, if you ever contact your parents or parents, that's a, that's a lot to try. And, and that's the thing, you know, people, if you're listening to this, please, if somebody reaches out to you and says, I'm adopted and we're related to one another, please try to react with some kindness because there's so much riding on that communication. You know, are we saying the right words? Did we say the wrong things? I, did you and your wife like talk about what you wanted to say in this letter or was it something you felt like you needed to do on your own? I, I thought I needed to do it on my own. Obviously I had her, you know, read it and see what she thought, but I pretty much stuck to what I just wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's I've told my husband, if I ever do go back to the South to meet any of my maternal family or up to Canada and the Northern United States to meet my father's family. I kind of feel like it's something I want to do on my own. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Very I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you understand. Cause he looks at me like I've lost my mind. <laughs> yeah. I think he's, he's goes into protective mode. Sure. Was your wife feeling very protective of you during this period? Uh, very much so. Yeah. So you eventually found out that your parents were married uh, and had to try and process all of that. 
And then did you discover that you had siblings? Yes, I have two full siblings. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I, uh, you know, it's funny because so often our searches are focused on finding out our identities, obtaining our, you know, copies of our documents, you know, knowing where we were and what happened to us when we were, you know, pre-adoption and finding out who our mothers are. Many of us also want to know who our fathers are because, you know, 50% of us. Right. Uh, but the, the sibling connections often kind of get lost in the whole process. And then we're surprised, you know, we find out we have no siblings or lots of siblings. But not a lot of us find out we have full siblings. That's very true. Um, the fact that they did end up getting married, and that was so rare. At the time, he didn't think about, well, obviously, I do have full siblings. Mm -hmm. Then you go and you read stories about other adoptees, and it seems like, you know, 90% of the time, they only have half siblings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I have one, two, I have five half siblings. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, I think you're only the second or third adoptee that I've spoken with who has full siblings. Now, have you had a chance to meet your parents and your siblings? Yes. Good. Did it go well? It went pretty well. Yeah. All right. Um, Congratulations. My initially when I met my parents the first time we went up to their house and it was um it was a very it was very calm back and forth. Um, they lived geographically far away, so it wasn't like we could go over there every weekend. But it was it was a very you know we didn't get into any deep conversations or anything like that. It was very cordial and very pleasant. Okay, well that's good because that's a scary meeting. That that first. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that's another thing too, when you live far away from people, even though they're your family, getting to know them can be really challenging. Yes. Yeah. Now, and then, you don't, you don't know their routine or, or anything like that. You don't want to constantly come in and interrupt them. So it does, it does have its challenges, no doubt about it. Yeah, you know, somebody said to me once that it's not like I could just meet my mom for coffee once a week and get to know her. And, and that's so true for so many of us. We don't have the ability to just have like casual, non super emotionally charged meetings with each other because every meeting is an event. You know, right. you had you had to travel. I would have to travel all the way across the country and, and also across country lines. And because I was adopted from the UK initially, I didn't know if my parents lived in Europe. I, sure. Yeah, you know, and it turns out my my brother that was adopted, his his mother lives in England and his father lives in Spain. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't, you know, know if that was going to be a similar situation for me. 
And so, you know, there's no, like, like I said, you can't just, Hey, let's go to a concert together. Or how would you like to just like grab dinner and go see a movie? Right. Yeah. It's not like that. Now, are your siblings also far from you geographically? Yes. My brother lives near Los Angeles and my sister lives on Staten Island. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're not just dropping in casually to see them either. Not happening. (laughs) Oh, no. Now, at the time that you found out who your family was, did Connecticut allow you to get a copy of your original birth certificate at that time? No. As a matter of fact, we actually went to the town hall the same day we found out the intermediary found out who my parents were. And we were, we were asking all kinds of questions, but I, I could get the original amended copy, but not the, the original copy. See, that's just, it's so ridiculous because people will say, oh, adoption's not like that anymore. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority of the country is like that. 11. There are 50 states, people. 11 states allow unrestricted access. So now that Connecticut allows adoptees to request copies of their original birth certificates, I sent you a link. Have you applied to receive a copy of your original? I have applied. I have sent it off. I have heard nothing. But I'm I'm figuring the wheels of government turn very slowly, and I'm I'm not too worried. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And it is a pandemic still. A lot of people forget that a lot of places are still short-staffed. Yes. And so now, is it okay to ask you how much the application fee to get your OBC was? It was $65. Okay, so I will have to check and see if an if a non-adopted person also has to pay the same fee, because in some states they're very egalitarian, an adoptee pays the same amount to get a copy of their birth certificate that a non-adopted person does. And then in other states, adoptees pay considerably more, like up to $150 to get a copy compared to, you know, a non-adopted person who might spend 15 or 20. So, That's interesting. I, I didn't even think of that when I applied. Yes. There could be a difference in price. Yeah. Yep. I started asking around. I, you know what made me think of it is that I, when I was trying to find out who my family was and trying to find my mother, I learned that she was born in Alabama and I thought I might get some information from her birth certificate. So I sent away for a copy of her birth certificate in 1999. If she ever listens to any of these podcasts, she will learn this and probably be horrified. Sorry about that. Um, so I said this was pre 9-11. So the laws have changed. It's not as simple now. But it was $2 in a stamp. And they sent me a copy of her birth certificate. And you and I know, and you and I have talked about the the difficulty in getting different kinds of certificates. So it was $2 for hers. It has cost me 
now after over 20 years of searching for, you know, maternal and paternal family and DNA tests and applications for adoption files and applications for my OBC and everything. It's cost me like hundreds and hundreds of dollars to finally get that copy of my original birth certificate. It's, I mean, I don't even want to tell people how much it is. It's a lot. Like in some places you could buy a used car for the amount of money that I have spent to get this information. And I feel very, and it took me a long, long time because I didn't have the money to just, part of why I haven't met my family members is because I don't have the money to just hop on a plane and just go. Right. Yeah, and, and so people just don't think about that part of what adoption does to families and you know $65 you know you may be at a place in your life where you can afford $65 or $65 might be are we going to eat this week right if you're on a fixed income $65 for basic information is oh yeah when my husband was in the military $65 was like I'm putting diapers on my kids this week you know, it was, it was not, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just crazy. And so you sent away and hopefully you're going to hear back soon. Now, even though you knew who your family was, why did you want to have a copy of that certificate? I think it was just a matter of principle, you know, just, just being adoptee and never having access to that piece of documentation before yeah it, it, you know it's enlightening i think so you'll have to let me know how it feels when you hold it in your hands <laughs> you know it, and then you also because you have children of your own this is something that you provide them with as well right yeah you, you never know when they might need it for some type of legal ramifications or anything like that. Well, or just because they want to know where they, you know, where they came from and be able to point to it and say, you know, this is, these are my grandparents and my great grandparents, and here's proof of it. Now you've had a really interesting request from a family member to perform a task that I had never, you're the first person <laughs> that has ever told me a story like this. And so if you would just share a little bit with people about your grandmother. Um, my paternal grandmother committed suicide in upstate New York in 1962. And she was buried in the same municipality where she killed herself. Um, my paternal grandfather moved on and when he passed away, he was buried in his hometown of Clinton, Ontario. My biological uncle, my father's brother, um, wants to move her cremains from her burial site now to go rest with my grandfather. And he wants me to be the conduit to bring her ashes 
from New York to Canada. There's so much in that to touch on. First, I'm sorry that your grandmother, that's a hard thing to learn about a family member. And I'm very sorry that that's something that you've had to kind of process. I'm, I'm thinking that in the late 50s, early 60s, if you had issues with mental health, it, it must have been particularly awful. And I, I don't think they had the kind of treatments they had today. So I'm, I'm thinking if she had to be that desperate, it, it was really hell on earth for her. So. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I don't know how much our mental health services have improved in this country for accessibility and for understanding, but I do think we were better than it was in the 50s and the 60s. And so how did you, so you had developed this relationship with your paternal uncle since discovery. Correct. That sounds like it must be a pretty close relationship. I, I think with him and my aunt, I got more of the long lost family type connection, if that makes any sense. Oh, it uh, does. He seemed to be really excited to, to have found this new nephew. Oh, nice. And he was, he was a little bit upset that he was never informed of that beforehand. Oh, so, so he did not know that they had had a child that had been lost to adoption then. Correct. Okay, so he's trying to process learning he has a new nephew while you're trying to process that you have this family and that your parents stayed together. So this is not like a half uncle. This is like your full on uncle. Correct. And he and his sister welcomed you. That's really nice. Have they also established a relationship with your with your children? He's a Episcopal priest. Oh. And he married my daughter. Wait, he married no, so he you performed there? her marriage ceremony. Oops, my screen has frozen. David has disappeared. Let's see if he comes back. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You're there. You're back again. Okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So just for the listeners, let's clarify. Your uncle performed your daughter's wedding ceremony. Correct. He did not marry her. <laughs> he was, he was right. He was the officiant. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Just for anybody who's not quite paying attention at that point in the recording, just let them gotcha. know. <laughs> uh, well, that's nice. That's, um, it's always really kind of heartwarming to hear of reunions that have gone well. And I'm not saying that yours has been like seamless and that there was, were no challenging moments. It just sounds like overall, it's been a fairly positive experience for you. Right. Thing, thing, obviously, things could have gone a lot worse than they have. So I consider myself pretty lucky. All right. So 
So this uncle, who is the Episcopalian priest, Episcopal priest, try saying that really fast 10 times, uh, he has asked you to transport your grandmother's ashes from New York. So that's another state, that, but that's where your parents grew up and transport right. them across national borders, not state lines, but across a country's territorial border uh, and take her cremains to be interred. Now, I decided to email the state of New York because New York is one of those 11 states that allows adoptees unrestricted access to their birth certificates now. And I thought, well, if they let you have a copy of your original birth certificate, will they give you access to say your grandmother's death certificate or your mother or father's death certificates, you know, when the time comes or should you need to access them at some point? And would they allow you to take your grandmother's cremains and go to Canada with them? And I got this really heartwarming email back from the state of New York. And I think I'm just gonna read it here for people. It says, thank you for reaching out to the New York State Department of Health Bureau of Vital Records, general mail with your concern. Happy to try to help. An adoptee may request copies of their adoptive parents' death certificate. They would need to mail in a complete application, fee, proof of identity, and must provide documentation of a lawful right or claim requiring the death certificate. As this is a complicated matter, it would be best to submit everything to our office via the application attached. They do not, or no, they cannot obtain copies of their birth parents' death certificates based on the pre-adoption birth certificate. So you have zero access as an adoptee to those certificates in the state of New York? I, I can't say I'm really surprised, but I kind of thought that there would be some type of procedure where, yes, I, would, I know I would have to jump through a lot of hoops, but if I jumped through said hoops, I could obtain the documents that I wanted to. Apparently, no, it's a complicated situation. And you're the complication as the right. adoptee. You're the complication. We're we're used to that, right? That's me. Yeah, we're used to being a problem that needs a solution. It's uh, and people wonder why we get a little depressed at times. It's, so your uncle will have to make the necessary arrangements because by law you are not unless. So I talked to some people and it sounds like what you could do is you could get a power of attorney, which means you would have to go in and get everything notarized by a lawyer, which means you got to pay all the legal fees to get the paperwork drawn up, get it all notarized. 
generally these days they can do some of that by mail. You used to have to be present, like physically present, but now you can do a lot of things like, um, for my adopted mom's estate, I was able to go to an affiliate out here because we didn't live in the same state. I could go to an affiliate here, sign stuff in their presence, have it sent. None of which is free. And, you know, have legal rights to do certain things. So you could go that route or he can sign all of the paperwork and put everything into motion. But I'm still not sure about the transporting across state lines. I think what I saw was if you just don't, if you're very upfront with them about what it is, and you told me something about how that might work as well. You want to share with people how that process goes when you're carrying dead people across borders? I believe that there's some type of a special container that you put the, the urn or whatever the ashes are in mm. so that the people at the border, if they need to readily inspect it, you know, they can do so with a little bit of respect. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure of the particulars or what the name of this container is, but I'm pretty sure that there's a special type of container that the urn can go into. Okay. That'll make everything run smoothly at customs. Well, you would, I guess you would hope so, especially because I know there are a lot of people in upstate New York who have relatives on both sides, you know, in Canada and in the United States. Right. And that's, that's surprisingly true for most of the, the Northern United States, uh, Michigan, upstate Washington, upstate Idaho, New York, a lot of people uh, immigrated from Canada to those states or the other direction. So I would think that the cemetery that you would be dealing with might even know how to, to transport, like what to do with the remains. Right. Common sense would dictate that people do pass who aren't citizens of said country. So yeah. there, there has to be some type of procedure. Yeah, and for you to be able to do it without getting too much of a hassle, but you are not legally allowed without that uh, power of attorney to, right. in, yeah, to initiate the disinternment and, and do all of that. I, in, I think we talked about I had the, the honor, the dubious honor of transporting half of a person's dad as a postal carrier. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a very stressful day. I, I definitely wanted to deliver dad in a timely manner and, <laughs> and, and respectfully, but I also really didn't want dad in the back of my truck. <laughs> understandably so <laughs> yeah, I, I just for the entire two miles from my office to the residence I was just please nobody hit me please nobody hit me nobody robbed my truck can we please just make it and 
So, so you're going to be driving or are you planning to fly? No, I'm driving. Okay. And how long of a drive is that? Do you know? I, I believe it's about six hours. Okay. So that's, that's enough time to experience a lot of different emotions. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm kind of excited, but at the same time, there's obviously some trepidation. Um, you know, feelings about family and being adopted. Uh, like you were saying before, so things could go wrong. You get into an accident, something of that nature. There's a lot to think about. Yeah. And this is going to be the first time that you'll have visited the place where your grandmother passed away? Second. Second time. Okay. We, were, we were a couple of years ago on like a pilgrimage. Okay. So you've had a little bit of time to, to kind of be familiar with the area? Yes. Well, that's good. I Now, are your other, do you have other family members who are also buried at the same cemetery where your grandmother's remains are? No, she's the only one there in upstate New York. Okay. Uh, my grandfather in Canada is buried with his parents and a couple of his sisters. So will this be your first trip to Canada to where your paternal family is from? Yes. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be amazing, I would think. I'm I'm have my itinerary that I've tried to figure out for when I finally make that trip too. Uh, if the if the United States government will be kind enough to give me a real ID so I can go. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> I don't know because my adoption wasn't finalized till I was 13 months old and I was in a foreign country, so they're not sure about me. Yeah. Uh, so you. So you've got your your passport application in and you've got your real ID set up and you're ready to go? Everything on that that front is ready to go. Passport's all set. All right. So now you're just waiting on the actual disinternment process and getting right. the paperwork. Okay. Now, are you going to have the opportunity to meet a lot of your extended family in Canada when you go? I'm not totally sure. Okay. Um, we really don't have a set itinerary yet. Obviously, I've heard a lot of stories about you know uh, various businesses that they owned and um, cottages by the lake and, and things of that nature that you know that I would love to check out. But anything specific, I, I'm really not too sure at this point. Okay, so a lot of history there for you. Yes. Did they immigrate to Canada uh, like in the 1800s or 1900s? Uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. Okay, so there, there's a lot of history then for your yes. family. Did they, now my family immigrated from Germany to Canada in the, like around the mid 1800s. Do you have, and then a bunch of Scottish people in my family immigrated around the same time. Do you have that Scottish or that German ancestry? Uh, Ireland. Ireland. Okay. Okay. So 
you um, have a lot to look forward to next summer because you're thinking sure. next, next summer. Yes. You can Apparently, get away from common sense would dictate that you don't want to do it in the winter. <laughs> no, that's true. But hopefully it'll be a break from your summer where, yes. you, where you have said it is fiendishly hot right now. Yeah, any relief would be wonderful. <laughs> I Yeah, you walk out of your air-conditioned house and get hit in the face with that. Oh, no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the weather is like in southern Canada. I'll have to ask a few Canadian relatives what the weather is like that time of that time of year. Uh, hopefully, it will be not just a very emotional trip, but uh, I hesitate to use the word healing. How do you feel about the word healing when it comes to our adoption journey? I don't know if I'd quite use that word. Maybe a pilgrimage might be a little bit better. Yeah, it's kind of a, there's this, there's this modality in psychology that is about narrative therapy. And it's about trying to integrate the different parts of our story into our lives in order to uh, kind of make us feel more complete. And so when I think about adoptees going on these kinds of pilgrimages, I think of that as this effort to integrate those missing pieces. You know, the places where false information or no information was pushed into the void. And now we, yeah. And, and so we get to remove that false information or we get to fill that void with the missing pieces and, and it's that way to kind of integrate what's been missing. I don't know if that makes sense. Sort of filling it, for sort of filling in the gaps. Yeah, like. That have been there since we were children. Yeah, you know, when you think about like, did you do timelines when you were in school as a kid? Oh yeah. Okay, so when you look at adoptee timelines, if we are willing to accept the narrative that adoption has imposed on us, then we have this clear timeline, you know, the day we were born to the day that we're presently in. But if we look at it critically from the perspective of, you know, who am I really and who what is my family history you know what is it really it's there's nothing there right yeah and that can leave people feeling very rootless and very just kind of like i don't know at the mercy of other people's narratives and agendas so I, I always think it's really cool when people take these, these trips. And hopefully it can be something of a family reunion for you. 
Sure. Like I said, filling in those gaps is it. It just sounds very exciting. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, that's great. Uh, now, I always ask people as we wrap things up, if you were going to offer like your best advice or some thing that you have learned that you want people to know as an adoptee, it could be directed to other adoptees or to the general public. What do you, what would you like people to hear? I think be patient, be patient with adoptees. I, I think that unless you've been there, you, it's very difficult to understand what we're going through and what we've been through. Um, just try to listen and be patient with us. That doesn't seem like too much to ask. There you go. <laughs> you, you know, you say that, but I'm sure we've all run into, you know, people that really haven't been that nice. So that would be an understatement. Yes, <laughs> I think so. And, you know, we had talked about how uh, cathartic it can be to talk to other adoptees online. You and I met through Twitter. Right which my husband calls the imaginary people network. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, but I know quite a few of us have made some really nice, solid connections with other adoptees through places like Twitter. Do you feel like that's one of those platforms where people could definitely spend a little more time being patient and listening? Yeah, without question. I, I think there's a lot of things in the adoptee community that we can debate. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you think adoption should be gotten rid of. I think that it just needs a lot of reforming. Mm -hmm. That's something we can, you know, disagree and debate on. Yeah. It's really nice to talk about. I think so. And I think, um, I know for me, I, I acknowledge that there will always be circumstances in which children need non-parents to take care of them. That's the unfortunate truth because we do have a culture where there are children who don't have parents who are capable of caring for them. Right. So for me, when I say that I want adoption to end, and this is one of the things that, you know, people debate when I say I want it to end, I want the current practice of erasing a person's identity, severing them completely from their families to end. I want a person in need of a stable home to be allowed to retain their original birth certificate, to be allowed to retain access to that certificate anytime they want, and to be able to maintain connections with extended family uh, as long as it's safe for them to have those connections. 
because a lot of adoptees have extended family who, if they knew about them or who, if they were able to, would like to have relationships with those adoptees, you know, sure. or, yeah, grandparents, aunts and uncles, siblings, but the current practice of adoption cuts us off completely from the opportunity to have those relationships. And in my opinion, that's unnecessary. And I think that's where your idea of reform and my idea of ending, they intersect because it would be an act of reform to allow children to have guardians, but still be allowed to retain their original names, access to their identities, and visitation with extended family. You know, we wouldn't be erasing who people are. And we would, I think, be forced then, hopefully, to acknowledge the traumas that surround adoption. And we would have to find ways to provide supports and hopefully kinship adoptions would be the first choice. What a lot of people aren't even aware of is that a lot of kids who are taken from their families and put up for adoption, their extended family is not even notified that the child is in need of a home. Correct. I mean, why, why do that? If there's a possibility that there's somebody who would care for the child who's related to them. So, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity through Twitter and other places to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, do you feel like, unfortunately, like adoptees aren't really allowed in a lot of spaces to lead the conversation around adoption? Oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah. Doesn't it seem like maybe we should be the ones being consulted on this? We are the experts. Yeah. Out about it. We are the experts. We've been through it. Yep. So Would listen you... up, people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to disagree with one another sometimes, but that doesn't mean you get to discredit us completely because we don't all necessarily agree on, on some of these things. But I think we can all agree um, that the conversations need to happen. Right. Yeah. Let's look at all points of view. Let's be respectful and take it from there. Yeah. Let's be grownups. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I may have to define grown up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could be difficult. <laughs> yeah, in order to make that happen. Sometimes I think we all need to pause and define terms, you know? Because sometimes I think we're all saying the same thing, but we're using different language. And so we don't know, or we're saying different things and then we're agreeing with each other, but we don't realize we're saying different things. Yeah, because we haven't defined terms. So, so for you being patient, what would that look like? Uh, sitting back and listening and trying to understand somebody else's point of view. I think uh, a lot of, from a non-adoptee's perspective, a lot of adoption is romanticized. Um, 
You might want to take a different look at that. Yeah. Want to listen to some of our voices. Might want to listen to some of the things that we've been through. Again, that sounds very reasonable. I could get on board with that. And, and I don't think if you turned it around, other people would like the same respect to be listened. Sure. Yeah, to, sure. and to not have your lived experience just dismissed out of hand because we need to maintain this romantic uh, narrative yeah so well thank you so much for talking with me today i really oh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure thank you for having me oh i i really appreciate you reaching out to me and i want to thank the listeners for listening to us today uh, and again this has been david lang thank you so much for being here today thanks my pleasure you are very welcome